I'm not going to waste my time talking about my lifestyle, my case, my punishment. I'm Bill Swafford, and this is Murderers in Ohio. So we got a killer on a run in Ohio. Hey, true crime listeners. I'm your host, Bill Swafford. Thank you for joining me in the Buckeye State. This is the very first episode of my new true crime podcast, Murderers in Ohio. In this podcast, we will talk about men and women who commit the horrible act of murder in the Buckeye State of Ohio. On this episode of Murderers in Ohio, I'm going to talk about the Youngstown Labor Day Massacre. Four people took part in this crime, but only one got the death sentence. I don't know about you, but that right there got my attention. One person gets the death sentence. Well, what happened with the other three who were involved with this horrible crime? So I think it's time we look into Youngstown, Ohio, and what happened on Labor Day back in 1991. Youngstown, Ohio is in the northeastern part of the state of Ohio. It's south of Cleveland and not too far from the Pennsylvania state line. I myself have never been to Youngstown, Ohio. I am a resident of Ohio, but on the other side of the state. Youngstown, Ohio is the largest city and the county seat of Mahoney County. Back in 1991, Youngstown had a population of over 95,000 residents. It has a large population with a lot of residents. You will have your bad neighborhoods and a high crime rate. There's a high poverty rate in Youngstown. Youngstown was known for being the center of the steel production, but the decline of the steel industry in the 1970s left the city without any major industry. Youngstown is known for being one of the poorest cities in America. Several pro football and baseball players have come out of Youngstown, Ohio. September 2, 1991, four men were gunned down, execution-style, in a Youngstown home on McGuffrey Road. And it became known as the Youngstown Labor Day Massacre. Now what does the phrase mean, murder execution-style? This is a phrase that we do hear associated with some murders. An execution-style murder has also been known as gang-style killings. It's most often done with the victim kneeling and a shot to the head. Basically, it is a close-range murder where the killer has control over the victim who is conscious and knows what's going on. Before we talk about the Labor Day Massacre, we got to go back to the 1980s. The 80s. Ronald Reagan was president. MTV will change the music industry forever. People sat at home and watched the Cosby Show in Roseanne. There was no cell phones or social media. In the 1970s and the 1980s, some say that most of Youngstown was controlled by the Italian Mafia. In the 1980s, Youngstown started to see other gangs started to form around the city and the African-American neighborhoods. These gangs had ties to the Bloods and Crips. These gangs eventually pushed out the Italian Mafia, so it's said. 
Also in the 1980s, crack cocaine was starting to take its hold on cities across the country. Crack cocaine found its way into Youngstown, Ohio. Crack cocaine is a free-based form of cocaine. It offers a short, intense high and is very addictive. With the introduction of this drug, cities also saw gangs pop up around the country. Some cities saw some kind of gang violence on a daily basis. Youngstown had several different housing projects. There was one called Kimball Brooks Housing Project. Kimball Brooks was a home to some gang members and drug users. There was one man who controlled the drugs that come in and out of the Kimball Brooks housing project. And that man was named Willie Flip Williams. Willie was a black male in his mid-twenties at this time. It is unknown to me what gang ties that Willie had, but he was gang affiliated. There was a time that I figure has to be in 1983 or 1984 that Willie Williams left Ohio and had gone to California. I don't know what part of California that Willie had gone to or why he had gone to California at all. It apparently wasn't to change his ways and have a better life. Williams was arrested and convicted for the possession of cocaine and attempted bank robbery. Williams spent five years in a California state prison. After Williams got out of prison, Williams went back to Ohio and back to Youngstown, Ohio. This was somewhere late in the year of 1990 or in the early part of 91. Now a lot can change in five to seven years, especially if you spent the majority of that time in prison in a different state. Williams, who by this time was in his mid-30s, had come back to Youngstown to discover that people had taken over his old drug turf. Williams had not learned his lesson while in the California State Prison. Williams wanted to go back into the drug game, and he wanted to be back on his old turf. A drug turf is basically a part of a city, maybe a street, or a housing project. A drug dealer or a gang will claim this part of a city as their own area to sell the drugs, and no one else outside of the gang or the person can sell in that area. People have been killed just for selling on the wrong side of a street. I asked myself why didn't Williams find a different spot in a different area of Youngstown? Did Williams just want a neighborhood that he was familiar with or he thought it would be easy to take control over? Williams had did some looking around and he could come up with three names of men who were selling drugs on his old turf. These men were Alfonso Madison, William Dent, and Eric Howard. When Williams had these three names, he knew that he had to figure out a way to get rid of them. At this point, this sounds like a lot of stories that were happening across the country at this time due to gang violence. To claim a part of a city as your own to sell drugs could mean a lot of money. As Williams started to form a plan, he knew that he was going to need help. If he would have tried something like this on his own, this probably would have ended up being a different story. Williams needed help from people he could trust and willing to do what he needed them to do. The people Williams chose made me sit back and say, what the hell was he thinking? Williams recruited the help of his 16-year-old girlfriend, Jessica Cherry. And yes, I said 16-year-old. 
With Jessica's help, William also recruited Jessica's brother, Dominic Terry, who was 17 years old, and their cousin, Broderick Boone, who was also 17 years old. This blows my mind. I have to point out the fact we are talking about a man who is in his mid-30s and has a 16-year-old girlfriend. That in itself is totally wrong. Williams put a lot of trust in three minors to carry out his plan. This makes me wonder about Williams' state of mind. We are talking about a man who made a career out of criminal activity. Were these teens so far into their addictions that Williams knew that they would do anything for him? I don't believe Williams feared too much of anything. It is said that Williams walked into a police station and claimed that he had been reformed. He wanted the police to give him the names and addresses of the local drug dealers. Of course, his request was not granted. Now you have to be crazy or have a whole lot of balls to do something like that. It is probably a little bit of both because you gotta be a crazy person to think that the police is gonna give you the information to another known drug dealer and then have the balls to actually go through with it. Alfonso Madison, William Dent, and Eric Howard were the names that Williams did have. Madison and Dent and Howard just happened to be watched by the local law enforcement for drug dealing. Williams had found out where Alfonso Madison lived. One night, Williams sat down with Jessica, Dominic, and Boone. William needed to go over his plan with the three teens. William told the three teens how he wanted things to go down. Williams had put a lot of thought into his plan. Williams had drawn out pictures of the outlines of the inside and outside of Alfonso Madison's house. He wanted them to be familiar with the house and where they all should go. At the end of this meeting, Dominic was told by Williams to burn the pictures of the outlines of Madison's house. Dominic only set fire to one of these outline pictures. With the plan now laid out, it was time to get things that they needed. There was plenty of time for everyone to change their minds and back out of his plan. On August 27, 1991, a few days before they carried out Williams' horrible plan, Williams had walked into a local radio shack. At this radio shack, Williams had bought walkie-talkies. They were the kind with the headset with microphones. That way the walkie-talkies could operate hands-free. Williams had also gone out that day and bought batteries and duct tape. Williams also plied the guns for the three teenagers and himself. It is said that Williams had purchased the gun that he had given Jessica off of a neighbor. After Williams had gone out and bought these things, Williams got together with Jessica, Dominic, and Boone. Four of them practiced using the walkie-talkies. Now at this point, there's still time for any one of them to change their minds and back out of William's plan. The four of them just didn't go out and carry out William's plan. They took time to talk about it and practice what they needed to do. This wasn't something that was done out of blind rage. This was premeditated murder. This was a gang-style execution. Late in the evening on September 1st, 1991, Jessica had gone over to Alfonso Madison's house. 
Jessica was supposed to set up a drug deal with Madison. This right here tells us that at least Jessica and Madison was somewhat familiar with each other. Jessica had arranged some kind of deal with Madison, and then she left the house and met up somewhere with Williams, Dominic, and Boone. Later that evening, Jessica returned to Alfonso Madison's house, but this time she wasn't alone. Jessica, Dominic, and Boone had gone inside Madison's home while Williams had stayed outside and out of sight. This tells me that there is a possibility that Madison didn't know that the three teens were associated with Willie Flip Williams. Once inside, the three teens pulled out their guns and held Madison up by gunpoint. They used their walkie-talkies to communicate with Williams, who was still outside of the house, and they told him when it was safe to go inside. At this moment, there was no chance of the teens changing their minds and walking out of the house. There was no cross on Willie Flip Williams. Williams entered Madison's house carrying a duffel bag. Inside of this duffel bag, there was duct tape, handcuffs, and gloves. Alfonso stayed at gunpoint while Williams handcuffed him and then put duct tape over his mouth. Madison was taken to a room in the house and left there alone. They had basically took Alfonso Madison hostage. They kept Madison that way while they carried out the rest of Williams' plan. Around 30 minutes after the four of them had entered Madison's house, something happened that wasn't part of Williams' plan. Someone had come to visit Madison and was knocking on the door. Jessica was the one who had gone to the door to see who was doing the knocking. I have to ask this question. Why would you answer the door while you were at someone's house? and you are holding that person hostage. This is crazy to me. A man named Theodore Wynn had stopped by to see Madison. Theodore had recently been discharged from the United States Air Force. Jessica had told Theodore that Madison was asleep. At first, they didn't want Theodore inside the house. He wasn't part of the plan. Theodore had turned to leave and had started back towards his car. Williams told Jessica to call Theodore back to the house. Theodore was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Williams knew that Theodore had seen their faces and they couldn't take the chance of there being a witness. Theodore had gone back to the house and had gone inside. Williams was waiting on him on the other side of the door with a gun. Theodore was held at gunpoint while he was handcuffed and duct taped like Madison. Then they took Theodore to a separate room and left him there. After they had dealt with Theodore, it was time for them to go forward with the rest of Williams' plan. Williams told Jessica to go to a payphone and call William Dent. Williams wanted William Dent to come over to Madison's house. Remember, this is before the widespread of cell phones and a person didn't have to go too far to find a payphone. Jessica had left Madison's house and had gone to a payphone. This was an opening for Jessica to change her mind. This was her chance not to call William Dent. This was her chance to call the police. This was her chance not to go back to Alfonso Madison's house. Jessica did make a phone call. And then she did go back to Alfonso Madison's house. William Dent would soon arrive at Madison's house. 
Eric Howard was with William Dent. Dent and Howard barely made it inside the house when they were met by Williams and his gun. Dent and Howard was also handcuffed and duct taped, then taken to separate rooms. Sometime after Dent and Howard showed up and were handcuffed, Williams instructed Jessica to turn up the volume on the house stereo. Then it is said that Williams went room to room, then one by one Williams shot Madison, Dent, Howard, and Theodore. Williams shot each one of them in the head, execution style. Williams and the three teens eventually left Madison's house. Jessica has said that after they had left Madison's house, Williams had gone back to the house just to make sure that his four victims were dead. Williams and the three teens had gone somewhere to hide out. Williams rewarded the three teens with drugs. Williams told the three teens that if they told anyone about what they had done, he would kill them. After what they had just done, I would say it's safe to say that Williams would have made good on that threat. The next day, Williams and Jessica were out driving to see Williams' son, who was born in 1988. Williams also had a daughter. At this moment, he was on his way to see his son. Williams and Jessica had gotten into a car accident. Another car had hit them. And Jessica had said that whoever was in the car had shot at them. Jessica had fled the scene, but ended up going back to the scene of the accident. She was arrested and taken to a juvenile detention center. Now you might be thinking, okay, they got Jessica in custody, and it wouldn't be long till Williams and the other two teens were to be caught. If you thought this, you were wrong. At this moment, law enforcement didn't know that Jessica or Williams had anything to do with the murders that happened on McGuffrey Road at Alfonso Madison's house. Jessica was released from the juvenile detention center. Williams and the three teens fled Ohio and crossed the state line into Pennsylvania. They did return back to Youngstown, and after they returned to Youngstown, the four of them had gone their separate ways. Being young not even legally an adult yet, then taking part in something as horrible as what they all did would have to weigh on a young person's mind. I don't know the reason of this, but on September 24th, Dominic decided to turn himself in to the law enforcement. Dominic gave a full confession to what happened at Alfonso Madison's house. Law enforcement then had gone out and arrested Jessica Cherry and Broderick Boone. The three teens were taken into custody and put into a juvenile detention center. Williams was arrested and put into the old Mahoney County Jail. This is where Williams stayed up until the time he escaped. Williams had no intentions of spending the rest of his life in prison. Williams would have to come up with another plan. A plan that wouldn't be easy to pull off. This plan would require Williams to recruit help. Williams and a couple of others got heavily armed with firearms. This armed group made their way to the juvenile detention center where Jessica, Dominic, and Boone were in custody. The armed group somehow found a way to get permitted inside. And then they took a receptionist, the sheriff deputy, hostage. There was a standoff between the armed group and law enforcement. The armed group did eventually give up, 
and were arrested. Williams did later testify that he had gone to the detention center with the intention of killing the three teens before they could testify against him in court. This really shows what kind of person that Willie Flip Williams was and how little he cared about the lives of others. Williams was willing to kill anyone if it benefited him in some kind of way. The three teens pled guilty to delinquency by reason of complicity. Basically, they pled guilty to be associated with the crime or being associated to the person who committed the crime. The way it sounds, they just got a slap on the hand. The three teens did testify in court against Williams. Williams was convicted of a few different charges. The main ones were aggravated murder and kidnapping. The state of Ohio handed down the death sentence to Willie Flip Williams. The police think Williams had committed at least 10 more murders during his criminal career. Williams would go to Mansfield Correctional Institution to sit on death row. A little fun fact here. In 1991, Williams would go to the new Mansfield prison. The old prison was shut down in 1990 and is next door to the new one. The old prison in Mansfield was where the movie Shawshank Redemption was filmed. I took a tour of this prison. Uh, this prison, you can take tours. They have haunted tours and things like that. And from one section of this prison, they have windows that overlook the new Mansfield Correctional Institution. And uh, you're not allowed even looking out the window. You're not allowed taking pictures or anything of this new prison. Okay, back to Willie Flip Williams. When Williams had gone to court, he did plead not guilty, and he did appeal his death sentence on several different occasions. Williams' lawyer tried to argue that there was jury misconduct and that Williams was deprived of an impartial juror. Williams' lawyer also claimed that it was wrong for the district attorney to take the testimony of the three teens, the same three teens who helped Williams pull off this gang-style killing. I hate to say it, but I kind of do agree with that. The state of Ohio should have not let the three teens off so easily, and the state should not have believed everything the teens said. The three teens had time to change their minds. They didn't have to carry out Williams' plan. I understand that the DA did what they could to put Williams away for the rest of his life, and after hearing everything about the man, I would have to say that that was the place he needed to be. But let's not forget, this was planned out. This wasn't something that just happened. This was planned. And I also want to bring up the fact that Jessica did go to a payphone while Madison and Theodore were alive and being held hostage. She could have called for help. She could have gone home, but she didn't. Williams was never granted an appeal. He was soon transferred from Mansfield's death row to the death house in Lucasville. On October 25th of 2005, the state of Ohio carried out the execution of Willie Flip Williams. Williams' family was with him on the day of the execution and some of the victim's families were at the execution. Williams didn't have a last meal, 
He only had a cup of coffee. Following words are what is known to be Willie Flip Williams' last words. I will not waste my time talking about my lifestyle, my case, my punishment. Mom, you've been there for me from the beginning. I love you. To my niece, my nephew, and my uncle, I love you all very much. You all stick together. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. Okay, this is where I originally planned to end this episode. But I had to keep on looking into this and looking for more information. I tried to look up family members of Willie Williams. And I did come upon two different articles about two different family members of Williams. One article was from 2018 and about Jesse B. Williams, said to be the brother of Willie Williams. Jesse B. Williams was convicted of murdering Diane Dent. Jesse has said that he hadn't meant to kill Diane. He had originally had gone out to kill her son. Now the last name Dent makes me wonder, because if you remember, one of Willie Flip Williams' victims was William Dent. Was there any relationship between Diane Dent and William Dent? I think it's just a coincidence there. I, I don't know. Second article I found, this one really just kind of made me stop and think, wow, what the hell? This one was about Stoney Williams, who is said to be Willie Flip Williams' son. The same son that Williams was going to see the day after the murders that took place at Alfonso Madison's house. This article was back in 2008. Stoney Williams was convicted of being part of a drive-by shooting that took a life of a three-year-old girl. Stoney Williams was the trigger man. Stoney is serving 28 years to life in Mansfield Correctional Institution, the same place where his dad had sat on death row three years beforehand. It's unfortunate to hear that his son went down the same path that Williams had gone down. There were probably people out there who expected Stoney Williams to live up to the reputation of his father, which is unfortunate. It is unfortunate that gang violence still is out there in our country. There is another article that I do want to talk about, but I don't really know what the article is about or what it said because when I was trying to look at it, the article wasn't there. I think that the article was maybe deleted or something, but there were still comments that was left on this page. And among the comments that was left, the comment was written by someone claiming to be Eric Howard's mom. And Eric Howard's mom said that Eric Howard, William Dent, and Alfonso Madison wasn't dealing drugs. They were good people. They didn't have criminal records. And I don't want to be the bad person here, but, you know, I know myself, I'm 43. I'm not going to sit there and go tell my mom, hey, I'm doing this, you know, I'm dealing drugs and all this. You don't have to have a criminal record to be dealing drugs. There is one thing that she said in the comment that caught my attention, 
and is the main reason why I'm bringing this up, is that she said that her son, Eric Howard, was approached by Williams, and Williams wanted Howard to sell drugs for him. Now, when you're trying to get your old drug turf back or you're trying to take over any area, you know, the major players will go to these smaller people and try to recruit them to sell to them first. You know, so I could see that that kind of proves to me to where Williams was in the process of trying to get his old turf back. I really wish I knew what the article was about. Because in the comment that she had left also, she said that the article was garbage and all this. So I really wish I would have been able to see and read that article. Thank you for joining me, your host, Bill Swafford, for this very first episode of Murderers in Ohio. Please subscribe to Murderers in Ohio anywhere that you get your podcast. And make sure to share it with all your friends. This podcast and music was put together and performed by William Swafford. We got the devil on the road at home.